the book of Hebrews and chapter 13. We're going to read from verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Amen. Let's have a further word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we are here to come into this place to worship you, to magnify your name, to honor you, to praise you, to love you, to show our devotion to you. And Lord, we want to be those that not only praise you, but learn to listen for your voice and discern what you are saying and hear your sweet voice speaking into the heart of your people the things that are on your heart for us to hear. O oh Lord, if any of us here be those that have come dull of hearing, we ask that you would unblock our ears. And Lord, if any of us have become dim of sight, we ask that you would once again give us ourselves. We are, th by your grace, the people of God. And it is the desire of our hearts, Lord, to live and function closely to you. We pray that we would walk in agreement with you. We pray that we would love your laws, love your ways, love your word, love the prompting, leading, guiding of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, in everything, we pray that we would love you. But Lord, we just ask as we look at your word together today, we are praying that you would graciously meet with each one of us here. We pray that you be merciful to us, Lord. We pray that, Lord, our hearts would not be hard towards you, but soft towards you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would implant that word into our innermost being that gives us light. Oh, Lord, it's the entrance of your words which gives light. Please would you transform us. Please would you renew us. Please would you revive us. Please would you direct our steps according to your will and purpose. Oh, Lord, we acknowledge afresh, without you we can do nothing. So please, grant your word go forth with anointing. May the lips of the speaker be anointed. May the ears of each one of us hearing be anointed to hear what the Spirit is saying. And with that hearing we ask for a mixing of it with living faith. 
that we may respond to the word according to your will and may obey your word. We ask all these things, Father, and we will give you all the praise and all the glory for hearing this, our prayer, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I began right at the end of the book of Hebrews to share with you this little passage that speaks of us going outside the camp. And in a sense, that's the title for the message this morning, Going Out the Gate to Jesus. Bearing his reproach, going his way. But before we come to this text, what I want to do is give you um, something of uh, an introduction into the book of Hebrews so that we can understand what the writer was saying here and why he was saying it. The book of Hebrews was written to a company of believers, professing Christians, who were Jewish. They had left their old ways and they had realized, or many of them had, that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah. And so they're now seeking to follow the Lord Jesus as their leader, as their captain. But having done that, they then come into opposition with all those around about them. And if you understand the times in which these people were living, the opposition to the Christian faith was being ramped up under the leadership of Nero. There was increased opposition. And so these believers were starting to come under persecution for what they believed, started to come under opposition. They were starting to know their goods being plundered. They were starting to find, well, some of them were being put into prison for their faith. The writer to the Hebrews says they had not yet resisted to blood, but they had reached a point where things had become very uncomfortable for them because of their faith. And it's interesting that, as our sister mentioned before um, in the notices, that there is increased opposition in our day. And these believers, these ones, knew what it was to be under opposition. You know, something of your windows being smashed to your house your children being bullied at school. This is a kind of opposition that these believers were finding. And so the thing was, they were then tempted to go back into Judaism and to take themselves away from the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. Now, Gentile believers didn't have the possibility of doing this. Because they weren't Jewish, they couldn't go back to the synagogues because they never was in them, right? So, but these Jewish believers had the opportunity of going back to the synagogue because at this time the synagogues were still licensed, it's still legal, it's still okay for you to practice Judaism apart from the Lord Jesus. So they had this way out and they're tempted to go back by the way that they had come. And this was a distinct possibility for them, legally speaking. So the temptation's there. 
Now, how do you write to a company of believers who are suffering this kind of persecution, tempted to go back from where, where they once came from, back into the system, the religious system? What do you say to them? You see, if they did go back into Judaism, they'd be able to go back into the synagogues if they did one thing. And the one thing that they would have to do is deny that Jesus is the Messiah. If they did that, they would be accepted back into the synagogues again. What a price that would be. The denying of the faith. Well, how does the writer to the Hebrews deal with this situation? When you go through the book of Hebrews, you can read it through. I'd encourage you, read the book of Hebrews right through, from chapter 1, verse 1, right through to the end of it. And you'll get the burden of the writer if you have a reading through. Set yourself perhaps the task one morning to carefully read through the book of Hebrews from the first verse to the last. And you get the whole wider picture of what the writer is speaking of. How does he deal with this situation? Well, primarily what he does is bring these believers to see their need to stay with the Lord Jesus. They bas- he basically brings the Lord Jesus right back into view again. That's what he's seeking to do. To bring the believer's eyes right back focused on the Lord Jesus so that he alone is central in their minds and in their eyes and in all that they think and do. You know, when we are in, having opposition, when we've got difficulty, when there's hardships in our lives, the first thing we uh, tend to do is, if we're at all spiritual, is begin to pray. And all that we're praying for is that the Lord would give us the answer to our particular predicament, right? Yes? That's what you do if you're relatively normal as a Christian. The first thing you're doing is saying, Lord, how do I deal with this situation? What is the answer to my problem here? And the problem is, so often, the answer to our problems is not the answer to our questions. Because the questions we bring to God are not the root of our problems. Often the root of our problem is that we have lost sight of the Lord Jesus. We've lost sight of Christ, of the Messiah. And you need to get the Lord Jesus Right back in view. I remember a number of years ago, I was struggling with a particular problem that was plaguing my mind for such a long time. And I remember saying, Lord, how do I get through on this problem? I cannot deal with this situation. And in my mind's eye, though it wasn't a vision, but it was something of an impression in my spirit nonetheless, that the Father took hold of my hand and he brought me to the Lord Jesus. And he let go of my hand, put me in front of the Lord Jesus, and said in my, in my spirit, though not audibly, but just by way of impression, 
here is the answer to your problem. But it didn't answer my problem, but it did answer my problem. I'd lost sight. I wasn't focusing on the Lord Jesus. When you focus on the Lord Jesus, everything gets put in its proper perspective. Unless Christ is central in your life, it doesn't matter what you know or what you think you may know, there will be something off balance. Unless the Lord Jesus is the one that fills your gaze, there's always going to be problems. No wonder David said in Psalm 27, One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house all the days of my life, so that I might get all my problems solved. No, it doesn't say that. So that I may gaze on the loveliness of the Lord. That's essentially what he says. When was the last time you actually got your Bible open and meditated as you read the scripture on the beauty and wonder and loveliness of the Lord Jesus. It's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. I enjoy it so much. I personally like doing sitting down in the morning, particularly when it's cold. I have to have my dressing gown on, because I'm a bit of a weed. And I put it round me and I wrap myself. I may have a hot water bottle even. And then I sit in my chair with a cup of coffee, get my Bible open, and I meditate on the loveliness of Jesus. Tell me something better to do. You'd rather play on your game console? You can have it. You'd rather watch a film? Go on then. You'd rather meet your friends in Bromley. <laughs> you prefer to go shopping. You'd rather play football. Oh dear. You'd rather play cricket. You know what the hymn writer said? I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Bev Shea used to sing it before Billy Graham got up to speak in his deep baritone voice. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Isn't it amazing what we run to before sitting before Jesus? The writer to the Hebrews gets the believers Eyes on the Lord Jesus and basically takes them through this letter and says to them in various different contexts, Jesus is better. That's it. Jesus is better. What do you want to go back to the types and the shadows? Jesus is better. Jesus is better than your Xbox? Jesus is better than your TV screen? Nothing wrong with having these things. I'm not condemning you for having them. It's not a law against it. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't have a screen. I'm just telling you Jesus is better. Nothing wrong with it. 
There's no verse that says, Thou shalt not have a screen beyond so many inches in your living room. Nothing like that. All I'm telling you is, if you want to go that way, you can, but you're missing out. You're missing out on what is better. There are things that are good, but there are things that are better. There was nothing wrong in one sense in the Levitical system. This is instituted by God in the Old Testament. It's good, but it's not better. Not better than Jesus. Not better than the Messiah. And so, it's in seeing him that we are changed. You remember C.H. Spurgeon? I never tire of this story. It's one of my favorite stories. How this youngster was struggling in his sins. And he was going one night to his church. And it was a cold night. And there was storm and there was snow. And he couldn't get to the chapel he normally went to. And so he went to a little, I think, Methodist chapel. Something like that. I'm not sure what it was. He went inside and he sat down. And the normal preacher that should have been preaching that evening was away. And so somebody from the congregation got up. And the man from the congregation began to preach. He was just a lay preacher. He wasn't even a, he wasn't a pastor or an elder. He was just somebody from in the congregation. He got up to bring the word. And he said, You need to look unto Jesus. You need to look unto the Lord Jesus. Look unto Jesus. There's no good looking into yourself. And he spotted this young man, Spurgeon, in his melancholy look. And he said to him, he pointed to him and said, Young man, you are depressed because you are not looking. Look to Jesus. Look unto Jesus. And C.H. Spurgeon said, I looked. And his eyes was open to the glory of Christ. Within a year of that initial look, the whole village he lived in was ablaze with revival. It was reported that as you went down the village lanes, you could hear people singing hymns from their houses. This is way before Spurgeon went to London. And then at the age of 19, he's asked to go to New Park Street, London. At 19, that's even younger than me, right? <laughs> 19! C.H. Spurgeon at 19 becomes the pastor of New Park Street Church, which was a very, very, very prominent church in his days. It had a great history. Many years before him, the pastor John Gill was there, the Baptist pastor. It was one of the most well-known Baptist churches around. C.H. Spurgeon began with just a congregation of a couple of hundred and he ended 
his ministry with a congregation of 6,000. And what's all in between of things that the Lord did is incredible. It all began with seeing Jesus, right? It didn't begin with religion. It began with him seeing the Lord. His heart being opened by grace to the beauty of Jesus. It's amazing what happens when you see the Lord. Amazing. So this is what is the writer to the Hebrew. I'm trying to get back to my passage, but I just keep on interrupting myself. And anyway, so in the book of Hebrews, what you find is the writer begins to get their eyes back on the Lord. And what he does is compare the Lord Jesus to what these Jewish believers had known before they had left Judaism as such. So in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, the writer says, Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Praise the Lord. What an opening passage to a book. What is he doing? Immediately the writer to the Hebrews is comparing Jesus to the prophets. And he's saying to them, Jesus is better than the prophets. Now you've got to remember, they have the background of knowing all the prophets. All the Jeremiah's and the Elijah's and all the rest of them and the Ezekiel's and everything. They knew these names. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, ah, Jesus is better. Jesus is higher. Yes, God spoke through the prophets in time past, but in these last days he's spoken to us by means of his own son. That's very different. What prophet can actually say they have made purification for sins? They have sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Not one can say that. But this son of God has done all these things. Jesus is better than the prophets. And then from verse 4 right through to verse 14... Then the writer goes on to show us that Jesus is better than the angels. Now this is a wonderful passage if you want to bring it to Jehovah Witnesses because they have no answer for these verses. Because they say that Jesus is essentially an angel and these verses clearly make a distinction between the angels and the Son of God. It says in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then go down to verse 8. And this is a verse that no Jehovah Witness can answer because it's essentially showing us that Jesus is God. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. When it says, but of the Son, he says, 
Who is saying that? Who is saying that? It's God the Father himself. And nobody is of a higher rank than be able to describe who the Son is. If you say that the Son is not God, you are arguing with God, quite frankly. And that's why the teaching of the JWs is completely erroneous to the core. And we need to stay far from it. Jesus is the Son of God. And then notice what he goes on to say if you go down to verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The rhetorical question is obvious with the answer, isn't it? No one. There's no angel that has ever had these words said to them, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. No angel has had that, but the Lord Jesus has. This shows that Jesus is far greater than the angels. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And so right from the get-go, the writer to the Hebrews compares the Lord Jesus to the prophets and says he's greater. Compares the Lord Jesus to the angels and says he's greater. And when you go on to chapter 3, from verse 1 right through verse 6, you find that he says that Jesus Christ is better than Moses. Wow. Moses is a revered name amongst the Jewish people, especially the religious. And here, the writer to the Hebrews is reminding them that Jesus is better than, the, than Moses. Verse 1, chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. There's a measure of comparison there, but go on to verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Consider that comparison. And now the writer even brings out the difference further. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now notice this verse 5. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but the Lord Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. In all God's house as a servant, over God's house as a son. You see, the Lord Jesus is greater than Moses. And then if we go on to chapter 7, Chapter 7 and verse 11, we have the comparison of the Levitical order of priesthood with the order that the Lord Jesus has come into, which is of the order of Melchizedek. And in verse 11 we read, Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. Right, so there was an order that was raised up, which Jesus was in, that was an order that was better than Aaron's order. And on that particular 
foundation. He then goes on to elaborate from verse 12. Really, you can go right through to verse 28. But what does he say in verse 12? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has served at the altar. At the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses, said nothing about priests. Okay, verse 15. This became even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You see, the thing about the Levitical priests were they could function only for a time. But remember, we all get old, even me. I look older than I used to look. You look lovely, but I look older than I used to look. So the fact of the matter remains that age is with us. And these priests would get older and they might officiate for a time, but then there came a time when they couldn't do it anymore. You can't be 90-odd officiating, can you? It'd be exhausting trying to be at the altar. You just couldn't do it. They ran out of ability. But the fact of the matter is the Lord Jesus never runs out of energy. Hallelujah. He never runs out of energy because he is of the order of Melchizedek. And as you know, he says of Melchizedek that he had not beginning of days or end of life. This speaks of our Lord Jesus, who has no beginning of days or no end of life. He is God the Son. He has never had a beginning. And he shall never have an end. And it's of this order of Melchizedek that our Lord Jesus came. And we read in verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's the basis, you see, of his priesthood, an indestructible life. Well, you say to me, well, what does that mean? It means an awful lot. It means an awful lot. Go on a little bit. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Remember that. The law makes nothing perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. It just doesn't have power to change you. All it can do is confirm you in your sin and in its view of you is right. But it can't save you. Its view of me is right, but it can't save me. The law doesn't perfect people. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Notice that word better again. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There it is again. The old covenant was the covenant of law. And it was under the Levitical priesthood. And this priesthood could not, the priest couldn't keep going because they kept dying. Okay? It happens. 
But this Lord Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were made many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You said you've already told us this. What's the point? It's the next verse. Just be patient. Okay? That's the next verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Lord always lives to make intercession for his people. Hallelujah. Just look at John chapter 17 and verse 9 and you'll find that's exactly what he lives to do. He is interceding for his own. He is interceding for the sheep. He is interceding for the, those who inherit salvation. Our Lord Jesus is praying for his people, even now. If he was of the Levitical order, he would have had to stop. But because he's of the order of Melchizedek, he continues forever and he lives by the power of an indestructible life, interceding for his own. That means one thing, his priesthood outlives your life on this earth. Hallelujah. You say, what does that mean? Romans 8, doesn't it? You say, where? Okay, I'll tell you. Romans 8, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. On the basis of that knowledge, Paul goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, you see. But if the priesthood ran out, if your priest ran out, you'd have to get another one in jolly quick. My priest, my high priest, my high priest, friends, the Lord Jesus, never runs out. My high priest doesn't stop praying. My high priest never stops interceding. His intercession outlives my life. This is tremendous. No wonder we have better promises no wonder we have a better covenant, right? This is tremendous. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you go on to chapter 8, not of Romans, I mean of uh, Hebrews, chapter 8, and verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Oh, this is tremendous. Better, better, better everywhere. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast, come on, keep up. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up 
one another to love and good works and so forth. So I didn't mean to mention that. See, I'm, I'm going ahead of myself. It's the confession of our hope, though. This is the one. This hope is based on better promises. We have a hope that is steadfast and certain, that's gone through the curtain and touching the throne. This is a wonderful thing about our precious Lord Jesus. But then go on to chapter 12 and verse 2. What does he say? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we're meant to be doing. Don't lose sight of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is better everywhere through the book of Hebrews. And then you get to 12 and he's saying, looking unto Jesus. And then you get to chapter 13. And now I can begin my sermon with verse 10, which was the passage that I was going to start with. So um, remember, just put your lunchtime meal onto the evening and then you don't have to cook this evening, right? It's easy, isn't it? Yeah. Only kidding. I won't keep you for too long. Honest, honest. Right, chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Okay, this is interesting. The blood is brought into the holy places but the bodies of the animals are taken outside the camp. Got it? The blood is in, the body is out. What does it go on to say about the Lord Jesus in verse 12? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay, now go back to Hebrews chapter 9 for me and have a look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay. Now think about this for a minute. How many of us consider this element of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ? Very few. But think about it because it's all related to the office that the Lord Jesus comes into as our high priest in the temple made without hands. He goes into the most holy place. He goes into the tabernacle above. The tent that was on the earth under the Levitical order was something of a type of what is of eternal glory and truth. Okay? The Lord Jesus is sacrificed. He goes out of the camp. But he enters heaven after he's ascended and his work on the cross is done. Does he go into the temple without blood or with blood? No answer. It's all gone really quiet. You know? 
What does it say in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5 and verse 6, concerning what, the Lord, concerning what John saw in regard to the open heaven, where he was in, able to see what was going on above? What did he see? What was seen in heaven? In Revelation chapter 5, a lamb as if it had been slain. This image of the slain lamb is amongst the elders that essentially represent the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord. Then if you go on down into verse 9, you'll find that there's this song that's raised up to the praise of God. So in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, we read, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So actually the theme of the blood of Jesus isn't left behind. There is recognition that the ransomed people of God have been ransomed by the blood of the Lord Jesus and that in verse 6 there is this image of the lamb as though it had been slain. When you see something that's slain, what do you see? Blood. The Lord Jesus finished his work at Calvary. It is a finished work. The blood was shed. But he ascended and went into glory. And his blood pleads for us as it were, before the throne of God. That's why it's called eternal redemption, is it not? It's not as though the blood doesn't count anymore. What Jesus did on the cross, that body was also lacerated. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was risen into a resurrection body, but it was still Jesus, and the marks that he bore on the cross were with him after he had risen. From the dead. Do you remember what he said to Thomas? Put your hands in mine, touch my side. These marks and wounds are still yet visible in the tabernacle made without hands in glory. The Lord Jesus suffered outside the gate for our sins. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood, this blood ever lives and pleads for us. We sing it. But then we go on to read in verse 13, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. What does this mean? What does this mean? Go outside the camp. I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying Jesus suffered outside the city. You say, what city? London? Washington? Where? He suffered outside the city. 
Jerusalem. Our Lord Jesus was taken outside the gate. He wasn't welcome in the city. And he has to bear the reproach of his own people rejecting him. Now look what he goes on to say. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp. The people that will persecute you first are not those in the world for standing for righteousness, for following Jesus. The first people that will affect you are the religious We will not be firstly attacked by the worldling, but by those that would rather stay in the religious system. And you have to break rank and go outside the gate and bear the reproach of the Lord Jesus. It means you will be lonely. You have to be prepared to stand alone. This is the mark of the servant of God. You have to be prepared to be misunderstood as Jesus was. And you have to be prepared to not answer back. You have to bear the reproach. Jesus had every right to answer back. He bore the reproach. Brothers and sisters, what, you, the, what these Jewish believers were forsaking was not something that was heretical. It was something that was good to get what was better. You with me? You can never say to me that the Levitical system of itself is unbiblical. Can you? No. Of course you can't. Of course you can't. They're told to do it. Right? Can't do wake up a little bit, some of you. I mean, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? They were told to do these things. There's nothing wrong with this Levitical system. But when Jesus comes into view, you have to leave what is good to gain what is better. Go out of the city. And it is always costly, because I promise you, you walk close with Jesus and you find after around about 10 minutes, he is not very popular. And he didn't make himself popular. And he could have been popular. But he chose not to be. What is in your heart? Do you want to go out the gate like Jesus? Or do you want to stay where things are comfortable and popular? Just keep going with the religious system. It's the breaking of the system 
that releases the people. Think of Martin Luther, 95 Theses. The breaking and cracking open of the strong hand of Roman Catholicism. Wow. But I want to go back in time a little bit. I want to mention somebody in the Bible who went outside of the gate. Right. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, Milko, is... You don't know, do you? That's because I haven't said it yet, isn't it? But um, One of my favorite characters in the Bible is somebody that doesn't get a wide press. But he's one of my favorite characters. I've mentioned him so often here. You should know him, back to, his name back to front by now. But if I asked you what it was, you wouldn't remember. That's why us preachers can get away with repeating ourselves 30 times a year. And you get everybody in the congregation saying, oh, that was good. And then you say it the next week and say, oh, I haven't thought of that. And you say, well, I said it last week. I say, oh, did you? you know, it's not quite like that, but it's really good for us preachers. It means we can repeat what we've said before, you see. But one of my favorite preachers is, sorry, not preachers, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Ittai, the Gittite. Yeah? You say, I'll tell you, what's so big about Ittai? I'll tell you. Okay, Ittai was from Gath. Now, immediately you know what that means, don't you? He was from the same place as a big fella, and it wasn't Jerome, it was Goliath. They were of a similar height, but it wasn't Jerome, and Jerome's a slightly nicer guy. Um, but it was, <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was the same place that, oh, what's his name? Goliath, thank you, Rachel. Goliath came from. And Ittai was going to move from Gath, and he moves all the way to Jerusalem so that he can be with the king, with David. So he goes with his family, and he gets there, he unpacks the whole house. You can imagine how difficult it was, must have been. They unpack all the equipment, the microwave, you know, the coffee machine, these important things. Everything is unpacked within the house, and they're there. And then, particularly the coffee machine, and then the very next day, something happens. What happens? King David is leaving Jerusalem. And why is King David leaving Jerusalem? Because there's a man called Absalom, who happened to be his son, who is sitting at the gate, winning over the souls of people through flattery, to agree with his position of things, in order to get his view, his popularity, is seen. And it wasn't before long that the majority of the people are with Absalom, not with David. Oh dear. So a faithful servant comes to David and he says to David, the men are with Absalom. What are we going to do? And so what does he do? He says, we've got to get out of here. So David and the faithful men go to get out of the city and he sees different people amongst them and amongst the people who are going to leave 
to go with David into the wilderness is this man, Ittai. And David says to Ittai, why are you coming? You've only just arrived yesterday here. You stay here. Don't worry about it. Just remain here. It, grace and mercy to you. David basically was giving him a blessing if Ittai chose to stay with Absalom. Stay with the popular group. And Ittai says, uh-uh. He says to David, where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. Where have you heard these words before? The book of Ruth. Isn't it reminiscent of what Ruth says to Naomi when Naomi tries to tell Ruth to go back to Moab and back to her gods? And Ruth says basically the same. Where you go, I go. Naomi is basically saying, there's no prospect for you if you go with me. And Naomi isn't going to have no for an answer. Orpah, her sister, kisses Naomi and leaves her. But Ruth clung to her. Now Ittai basically did the same thing. And so David says to Ittai, okay, join me, come with me. So Ittai essentially goes out of the gate. Out of the city, out to the wonderful place called the wilderness. Anybody fancy that? They had to pass through the Brook Kidron. It wasn't an easy thing to do. But he went with his little ones. He took them with him and they went through the gates to be with King David in the wilderness. No future, no prospect. There's no nice shops in the wilderness. No McDonald's. David? <laughs> There's nothing out there for you. Are you sure you want to go? I'm going. Because for Ittai, you see, there's no Jerusalem without David. You go where David goes. Right? So then Ittai goes out with him and they leave. And Absalom has the city. But you go on three chapters in the book of 2 Samuel to chapter 18. And you find within a short period of time, David makes Ittai a captain over one third of his army. And Ittai isn't even Jewish. Wow. Isn't that an amazing position to be in? Do you know the most marvellous thing about Ittai? The most marvellous thing about him? He went out the gate with David. He stayed with the king. David who represents Jesus as, as prophet and king. Ittai's name from the Hebrew, means with the Lord. With the Lord. If you want to be with the Lord, you need to go out of the gate. Yes? There's going to be religious systems 
and everything that will get in the way. You need to go out of the gate to bear the reproach of the Lord Jesus. In Britain, there was a company of pastors in 1662 that were ejected from their churches because they would not capitulate to compromise. And as a result of that, they were banished from their parishes within a five-mile radius and they weren't able to meet with their congregants anymore. They bore the reproach out of the gate. There will be various times in your life where you will need to do this and there'll be religious systems around you and the moment you cut through the religious system and out of the gate, it will be those in the religious system that will firstly try to win you back for it. Do you remember like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress? There was people that went after him to try to get him to go back. But let us not be like pliable, who when in the Slough of Despond decided not to go, keep going for the eternal city, but went back to the land of destruction. And what about these Jewish believers in the book of Hebrews? What for them? They had separated. That's what going out the gate speaks of. Separation from that which is merely religious and has no power in it. We need to leave these things alone. But go with Jesus all the way out of the gate. Moving on. Verse 13. Therefore let us go out, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. There's nothing that's going to last here. Any system of man raised up here will not last. Only that which is of God lasts, right? And therefore, we need to stick with what's of life. Now, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Do you remember Abraham? He sought for the city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. What are you seeking for? What city are you after? Are you investing in London? <laughs> are you investing in your own personal little city? Are you investing in the city that is to come? That's where we're meant to be sowing. That's where we're meant to be investing. Building up treasure in heaven. Hallelujah. Okay. For here we have no lasting city, but seek that city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. There's nothing like the sacrifice of praise. But praise can be easy. Of itself it can be easy. But when you begin to know something of suffering for Christ's sake, but you praise God, then it begins to have something of weight to it. Something of glory. Something that is essentially of God. I think of people like Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman paralyzed from her neck down, who praises the Lord in her wheelchair and lifts her gaze up to God. Beautiful. 
you can have two people in a meeting who are in wheelchairs. One is saved out the wheelchair. One remains in the wheelchair. The one who saved out the wheelchair rightly rejoices and praises God. But if the one in the wheelchair continues to praise God, I suggest the one who's in the wheelchair has something of a sacrifice of praise. Brothers and sisters, how much have you let the Lord deal with you? Last of all, do not neglect to do good. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? I know people in this church that do good. The problem with doing good is nobody really sees it too much. It's not popular. You don't get the attention of people like you do standing behind a platform like this. Uh, behind, not behind a platform, a lectern. You don't get the attention. But there's people that I know do good. And they serve and they minister. And you see it when nobody else sees it. And you know that they're building up treasure in heaven. A good turn. A deed done to somebody in need. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And they become all part of that sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Brothers and sisters. All I want to say to you is Jesus is better. Don't go back to religiosity. Don't go back to system. Don't go back to popularity. Go out the gate. Have courage and see Jesus is there waiting to will you on and to strengthen your soul for the good purpose of following him and bearing his reproach and knowing what it is to honor his name. And when we come to see with the Lord, in glory, we will never regret all that we've had to bear upon the earth. Amen. Dear Lord, we want to thank you this day that you are such a wonderful God. And we love your ways, Lord. We pray that we will be willing servants to come out of anything that means following you. For each one of us, Lord, there may be things that we want to hold to. We just pray for grace. Lord, we love you. Fill our hearts with desire for your ways. Help us to be more like Ittai, the Gittite. Help us to be willing to go with our King David, who is a better king than even David. Lord, we worship you. Help us to follow you all our days. And if it means reproach and loneliness, give us the grace to endure it by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.